You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Mark chapter 6. Let me just kind of refresh our memory uh, over the first six chapters. I'm not going to do a full brief overview, but why did Mark write this? You know, it's interesting. When you talk to people about Christianity, particularly at this season of the year, um, there's really kind of two heightened seasons where Jesus comes into the mainline focus uh, in popular culture or media. Uh, primarily Easter time and Christmas. And uh, right around these times, you'll see a ton of stuff on the History Channel, Discovery Channel. You know, is Jesus real? Is Christianity real? And this whole, you know, all of these different documentaries that will come at that time. And it's interesting because in my um, interactions with people that, that don't know Christ or are kind of struggling with it, one of the most popular um, things is that uh, the apostles or the early disciples Um, wrote this stuff down so that they could make money or have power. Now, the only problem with that, uh, that philosophy or that idea is that the reason that this is whole thing is just a myth, and the reason that they wrote this down was to manipulate people and take money and get something from them. That's, that's why they wrote that down. The only problem with that is almost all the apostles died uh, gruesome deaths. Uh, what we understand historically, Peter crucified upside down. All right, that's a bad, bad day. All right, it's bad to get crucified bad upside down too, right? All right, uh, James, the Lord's brother's head is uh, decapitated, cut off, completely severed, right? And you track through the apostles and then into the early church, and you notice that the church is born into a hotbed of persecution, okay? So what's interesting is that if I made up, uh, let's say that I came up with an idea that I could make some money in by manipulating people, and we'd start a church called City Light. No, I shouldn't use that example. Never mind. I'm kidding. If we, if we wanted to start something, right, and we could control people, what we would do is we'd create this myth and we think, okay, now this is good. Let's get them, uh, you know, to follow us. Now, I, I think I could hold together pretty good until someone says, all right, I'm going to kill you if you continue to believe this. At that point, I'd go, just kidding. I'll tap out, Right? But what we see here is that even Jesus' half-brother, right, from the same mother, ends up dying on account of him saying, Christ is Lord. Now, if my brother happened to somehow lead a cult, right, and he rose to a position of prominence, and I, because of his rising to this prominence, I gained some things in life where, man, I feel pretty good. we got a couple thousand people following us. This is good. The moment that I have to die because my brother is God, at that point, I'm going to tap out. Let me just say this. The book of Mark is an eyewitness account, not to try to manipulate people, but is an honest account of who Christ is. One of the other myths that we see, you know, is this idea uh, of manipulation in this. We see that manipulation, that this is written to do that. And I want to, I really, really want to encourage you that the the reason for this text is not to show us how can we create a church or something like that. The reason is to show us who Christ is and simply our response to it. Manipulation came after uh, the cross. And unfortunately, the sinfulness of the human heart can take even good things Make that bad. Mark chapter 6, though, I just wanted to give a little bit of background. Mark chapter 6, starting verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals 
and to put on two tunics. I'm not really quite sure why you need two tunics instead of one. Jesus says it. I guess you need to wear two, though. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they'll not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, what happens here? The first six chapters of the story, we understand that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, shows up on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Back to that idea of the myth and why this is written. At the time of the first century, there was nearly a dozen other people that claimed to be Messiah. I, I, I think this is one of the most profound apologetics for why Christ is risen, is that Every other messianic movement on that day, Jesus is not the only person to claim to be Messiah. He's not the only person that shows up and says, I am the Messiah you're longing for. But in the first century time, just a few years before and a few years even after Jesus dies, messianic movements rise up looking for a Messiah. And what's interesting about that is all of them end in death. And in them ending in death, they typically would say, okay, now who's the next leader? They would look to somebody, potentially a relative, and say, okay, now you take over the movement. And if he couldn't take over the movement, the movement would end. Would end. In fact, even one of those specifically ends in death by crucifixion. What I find fascinating about that is that when Jesus claims to be Messiah... He's not the only person that does that, but unlike every other person that claims to be Messiah, when they die, the movement stops. But what we see with Christ is the moment he dies, the movement begins. And this starts simultaneously, not just at Christ's death, and then people begin to pick up and say, yes, I'm going to go for this. But in the middle of Jesus' ministry, he turns to his 12 disciples and says, I'm going to empower you. This morning, I want to talk for a few minutes about God's will for your life and possibly looking at this a little bit different when we think about God's will. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, I was in a a service, a church service, not too different than this, and I felt God's heart kind of pulling on me for a while, a calling towards uh, vocational ministry of doing this primarily for the rest of my life, whether it be on foreign soil or here in the States. And I remember it was at a specific service that I really felt God, um, however you want to say it, speak, impress to my heart, whatever it was. It wasn't a lightning bolt, but it was just this kind of firm, this is what I have for your life. And I'll, I'll never forget the next day I was with a friend of mine and he turned to me and we were going back to church and he knew that God kind of like just brought this to me. And I didn't walk around with a halo on my head or anything after that. I just knew. I kind of had this inner sense that this is what God wanted me to do. And I'll never forget, he turned to me and he said, I hope I get my destiny tonight. Hope I get my destiny tonight. I looked over at him and I went, what? And he's like, yeah, I mean, like, you know what you want to do. I hope I figure it out now. What's interesting about this text here this morning, it's not just Jesus randomly empowering people. Jesus is calling them And sending them out. Notice again verse 7 with me. And he called the twelve and began to send them out. He called the twelve and sent them out two by two. To do what? To have authority over unclean spirits, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. I was reading, there's a a great Christian website called Lark News. If you ever read The Onion online, uh, Lark News is a, a pretty funny thing. This is an article which I think kind of rings home the point of what I'll quickly make. 
The article says man, age 91, dies waiting for the will of God. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got the confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was all about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was able, about to take action, he'd pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way. Ruby says he was very sensitive to always remain in God's will. That was primary to him. Friends say that like Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents, Walter had a number of skills that he just never got around to using, says longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood, and it was a storyteller side of him too. I always told him, take a risk, try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his, credit, to his credit, they said Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage on the couple's modest home. We're all looking for a call from God. But I sense in my heart that we've over-mysticized what God wants for our lives. And we see a story like this, and we think about what the kind of frantic environment of the first century would have been like. You know, what would it have been like to see this person, Jesus, the historical Jesus in the flesh, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, and then looking at us and say, follow me, come with me. Now, that, that wouldn't be very difficult for me to be, All right, I'm in. But yet, remove ourselves 2,000 years from now, and we read this verse, and my question is, what application does this have to my life? I mean, frankly, what, does it, what good does it do to me to look at 12 people that got to participate with Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing all that, 2,000 years removed from it, all I get to do is look back at them and say, well, isn't that lucky? Weren't they, weren't they just born at the perfect time? Then I read an article like that about Lark News, which I think is just hysterical because that encapsulates how most Christians spend their lives in a state of paralysis, waiting for God's will to interrupt our lives. I want to suggest to you this morning that God's will is not mysterious and or mystical, but it is plain and easy to be known. God's will is not mysterious, it's not mystical, it's easy to be known. It's not something that we live our lives, you know, it's, this cracks me up, especially, you know, growing up, uh, people are, you know, Christian, they're looking for that perfect, for the spouse, the one, right? Like, who is the one? Who could it be? You know, how do I know I'm supposed to get married to this? How do I know? How do I know? Well, if there's only one, I figured this out when I was young, pretty quick, because I thought this, this whole thing doesn't add up. I'm not great at math, but I recognize, I played dominoes once. What if somebody like in Eastern Asia married the wrong person? And that wrong person, because they married the wrong person, it sets off a chain of events all throughout the entire world. All it takes is one person to marry the wrong person, and now there's no one right for the other person. Nobody's tracking with that. We have over-mysticized the will of God to the point where people are concerned. How do I know God wants me to do this? 
And when I look at this text, I see this like frantic thing of like, wow, if only I could have lived 2,000 years ago, I would know exactly what God wants me to do because he says very clearly, this is what I want you to do. I call you to myself, now go do this. How many people would enjoy that? I'd be thrilled. I'd love to wake up in the morning and just have something written on the wall, just this detailed outline. Jared, this is the next 50 years of your life. This is how it's going to play out. All I want you to do is, you know, kind of walk through that. I would, personally, I would love that because I would have this great confidence in what I know is God's will. Well, I've got great news for you. Our perspective needs to change on that because you can have great confidence now. You don't have to wake up in the morning waiting for God to say, wear the purple shirt, you know, or like, take the job, go to school, marry the person, whatever it is. In fact, it cracks me up when God so clearly shows us what he wants for our lives, but yet we make the complete opposite excuses waiting for him to speak to us. So he tells us, this is what I want you to do, but then someone says, I just don't really feel led. That phrase is not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about feeling led to do something. You know, I just don't really feel led to pray for you. All right, the Bible tells us to pray. I just don't really feel led in that situation or that circumstance. God's will is clear and plain. Romans chapter 12, most of us have heard this text. Paul the Apostle writes this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's saying this. will of God's not unknowable. The will of God's not something that's super mystical that you'll never be able to figure out. The will of God can be known how? By a renewing of your mind. A renewing of your mind. We see later on in the book of Colossians, Paul the Apostle prays for them and says, From the day that we've heard about you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. I don't know about you, but I spend so much of my time trying to figure out what is God's will for my life. I want to suggest to you something, though. I don't think the will of God is necessarily what you do, but how you do what you do. Let me say that again. The will of God is not what you do with your life, but how you do what you do with your life. Book of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 says this, it is in the the heart of man that he plans a step, but God determines steps. A man plans in his heart which way he's going to go, but God determines his steps. What I've seen though, is that Christian culture has reversed those things to say, God, would you plan in my heart what you have for me so that then I can walk out what you want for me? But the book of Proverbs says, a man plans in his heart and God directs his steps. This has radical implications for our lives because I don't believe that God's will over your life is some sort of tightrope that you can fall off of and never get back on again. That is a really scary way to live. What I've seen, though, is that as Christians, if we're not careful, we live our life thinking that the majority of our life is mundane, average, and that God is uninvolved in rather than recognizing that he is constantly at work in our lives every day. The will of God is not what you do vocationally, but how you do what you do. 
I was talking with somebody recently. They were asking me, you know, Jared, I really feel like I want to do this thing. You know, I'm just not sure. You know, I feel like I want to go to school, go back to a specific thing. I'm just not sure if I'm supposed to do this. I said, you know, I have this image in my head when I think about the will of God and how do we discern? Because we try to figure out what does God want for our lives? How do we know that we're in God's will? You know, and theologians break it down to perfect will, permissible will, you know, will that's so beyond what we could figure out will, all of these types of wills of God, right? To the point where we've got graphs and science charts of this whole thing. How do I know I'm in the will of God? And I said, the more I'm looking at the scripture, the more I'm seeing that God's will for us isn't just an event. It's not like a a, a, a slipstream that I catch into and I'm like, yes, I'm in the will of God. And I'm like, ah, I'm outside of it again. I got to get back in. God, I'll get out. I'm in, I'm out. It's not that. The will of God is something that we can live in constantly. I encourage this person, Ephesians chapter 5 says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. But understand what the will of the Lord is. I love, that. I love that Paul says that. Just understand what God's will is for your life. He doesn't say fast and pray. He doesn't say roll around on the ground, speak in tongues, and go on a Daniel fast, and you'll figure this out. All right? He doesn't say fast from foods for 40 days, only drink water, and then you might figure out what God's will is. He doesn't, he doesn't say whip yourself into a spiritual frenzy. He just simply says, be wise and understand what God's will is. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine from Louisiana about this. And I said, as I'm reading this text in Mark, I'm seeing these 12 apostles that just looked like they knew what they were doing. It was so clear. Jesus calls them and sends them out. And I'm thinking, if I could only have that. And he said, Jared, I want to tell you something. He said, I, I believe that God's will for our lives has more to do with the alignment of our lives with his word than the assignment that God gives us to do. He said God's will has more to do with our alignment with his word rather than the assignment that he gives us. See, I get confident in assignments. When God tells me, do something, when I feel like, oh, I got this, then I'm good. I'm like, I got it, this is great. But when I don't have that, then I'm going, God, where are you? What, what, what's going on? This isn't fun. What does your week look like? Uh, pretty boring, actually, right now. I don't see God involved, and I have come to see in my own life, and believe me, I'm far from good at uh, stitching, <laughs> all right? But I've seen we've approached the, the, the will of God almost like a sewing machine. Follow me. Here's our life. God's will comes in, it interrupts, and we go, yes, I'm in his will. And then he lips up, and we go, God, where are you? Then a few months, weeks, wherever later, he comes back, and we feel him again. We go, oh, I'm in your will. I finally know what I'm supposed to do. You've, you've come back. I think that totally misses the point, though. I don't think the scripture speaks of God as a fatalist that just destines and ordains everything and then just lets the world spin and step back. Nor do I see the God as a deist who occasionally interrupts and just goes like this. What I do see is that through the incarnation, God is always at work because Christ has come to the world and now is constantly working on our lives, whether we see it or not. You know how the Titanic sunk? It went underwater. No, that's not how it happened. All right. Okay, oh man, Jesus, help me. This is 
How did it, how did it sink? It, it hit an iceberg. Just the captain probably was drinking. That's my assumption. Just saying, right? Okay. He sees an iceberg. We can go around that. It's not that big. What's the danger of an iceberg? You can only see about 10% of the top, maybe 15, maybe 20% of the top, but it's always bigger underneath. There's always more going on underneath than on top. I want to suggest to you that the will of God in your life looks far more like an iceberg than it does a sewing machine. You're not supposed to view your life as God who occasionally comes in and shows you what he wants you to do, and then he leaves, however, back to outer space or wherever our bad theology has placed him to the point where he occasionally comes down and interrupts our lives. I want to suggest to you that God's will is like an iceberg, that occasionally you'll see what he's doing, but the majority of the time you might not feel chills, goosebumps, or some overwhelming response, but I know confidently you can be in the center of his will because he told you you can God's will is not something that every day is, uh, you know, on TV that we go, look at this. And unfortunately, we have so bought into this thing in our society where the will of God always makes us popular, special, feel good, and publicized. This has not always been the case. If you go into Barnes and Nobles, which I guess that shut down here. Now we got to go to BAM. If you go to BAM, Books a Million, that's what it stands for, right? Okay. You, you, you go into BAM. One of the largest sections in any bookstore is self-help. It's funny. As Americans, we have more than any other person on the face of this world. But yet, the, the books we read the most, now I don't know if our crowd or demographic necessarily does, but the most popular book is self-help. Self-help. Now why? This fascination wasn't always the case. It started really at the, the tip off of the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a wonderful book. But the moment that self-help thing tipped, next thing, we're on this fascination of how can we perfect our lives? How can I get to the point where I have no pain, no suffering, no problems, where the will of God, unfortunately, has come to look more like Nirvana, not the band, come to look like Nirvana, right? Where we've tried to escape reality and seeing God's will. I want to suggest to you, as we begin to wrap this up, that the will of God, even for the apostles and in your life, might not be as detailed as you want it to be. Does God number your days, order your days? Is he sovereign? Is he Lord of all? Absolutely. But will you have a detailed plan over your entire life? Absolutely not. Will God's will for your life be laid out in this perfect thing? No. It's not going to be. Because he doesn't promise us that. Now, you might be able to... You know, rig up a couple scriptures together, tie them together and be like, you know, put God into a, a chokehold. You ever try that? You owe me. Look what I got on you. Psalms 139. You know my days now. Tell me what they are. If you don't tell me what these are, you're not God. Right? Get in this and you put God in a covenantal headlock and you're like, you're a liar if you don't prove this. No, 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 no. That's not what it, that's not the way this thing works. That's not it. He doesn't promise you that I'm going to tell you all of your days. Because that's not the purpose of humanity, first of all, is not to make our personal dreams come true. It's another sermon. Jesus calls the twelve, but watch, watch what he does with the twelve. I find this fascinating. Because when I read that, the first time I read that, I'm thinking about this messianic frenzy that's going on. Where people are swarming ever, everywhere, caught up in this idea that this could be the hope of Israel 
And because of that, they're a part of it. And you know what Jesus says? He goes like this, I'm calling you and I'm sending you out. And I find this absolutely fascinating. How does he send them out? When you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they won't listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. All right. Now, let's just pull back. If, if I could somehow get in the time machine, go back there. When Jesus would say that to me, first thing I would do, and I, I would suggest that most of us would, he would say, when you enter a house, I'd go, now what address is it? Stay there until you depart. How long should I be there for? You know, what's your will? What house do you want me to go to? Who do you want me to speak to? Where do you want me to stay? And Jesus goes, I'm not really concerned about that. I want you to get the understanding that my will for your life is not to go to this house or this address or this city or that state. My will for you is to go out and be an agent of healing and reconciliation into this world. Totally different. Look what Jesus says to them. Go in, preach at the house. If they receive you, wonderful. If they don't, then, then move along. Just move along. And what does it say? Verse 12. So they went out, proclaimed to the people they should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What I see there is not as specific calling as I would like to read into that. I would love to read into that this thing where it says, Jared Ruddy, my purpose for you and your life is this. I would love that because it would give me some sort of inner confidence, probably in my own humanity to make it happen. But what you see here and the overwhelming thrust of the Bible is that God is not concerned what you do vocationally, but how you do it for his glory. It's total difference. We can spend our whole lives, 91 years old, Waiting for God's will. Not doing anything because we don't want to get out of his will. I really don't want to take a risk there. I don't want, I don't want, to, I don't want to go for more schooling. or I don't want to start a ministry. I don't, I don't want to step out in faith here. Because unless, I get, unless I'm led, I don't want to do it. I don't want to use my, my giftings for the city because I just don't feel led. You know what? I have never felt led to make a sandwich in my entire life. You can, Aaron will second that right here. Aaron will absolutely, all right. I've never felt led. I get hungry, but there's nothing in me that sits on the couch. I start to get hungry and I go, Holy Spirit, is it your will that I would eat today? All right, no, I'll sit here on the couch. All right, just want to be obedient, all right? I just put on the worship music and it's like, Aaron, you know, Aaron asked me, Jerry, will you help with laundry? I'm not feeling led today. I'm just not. I'm trying. Honey, I love you, but I have to be more obedient to the Holy Spirit. I have to. I, would, I know, even if this causes strife in our marriage, I have to not do laundry until I feel led. All right. Somebody here, I just, I just ruined. Your whole marriage just collapsed. Because that's not fair. What? You've been doing that for years, right? No. I, 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 I can't do that. I just don't feel led to, I just don't feel led to do, listen, the idea of feeling led has left people in an absolute paralysis on mission with God. Rather than just see, here's, here's God's will. Ready? Go into all the world and preach the good news. So go. 
So what I understand then is that through the scripture, my job is not to look for green lights, but red lights. My call, my passion is not to wake up in the morning and go, God, you know, I just don't feel led to share with my neighbor or my friend or at school. I don't really, I don't have that unction. You know, I'm not walking through the grocery store and I don't hear you shaking me. I'm not saying running around ravenously shaking people. That's not the way we do things in our lives. What I'm saying is that we have been left robbed in a paralysis waiting for the will of God. Let me encourage you, one more verse from the book of Hebrews here. Book of Hebrews says, verse 20, 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's us, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. You may do his will. That's it. God's will is not up in the clouds. It's not something that I have to beckon to come down to me and equip you with everything good that you may do his will, verse 21 says, working in us. That which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The will of God is not primarily what you do vocationally or what you do. It's how you do it. This is why Paul in Corinthians can simply say, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. There is a freedom in Christ. There's no, there's no, you don't have to pray about waking up in the morning and say, God, do you want me to try to excel in life so I can bless other people? Does God call specific people? Let me do one little footnote section. Does God call specific people to specific things? Absolutely. But even those specific people that are called to specific things, what I see throughout the scripture go long lengths of time without hearing his stitching. You see Abraham goes years without God saying, Abraham, I need you to do this. You see Paul the apostle will spend three years in Corinth. He'll spend two years at this church, two years at that church. And there's no, nothing in this text tells us that God is constantly stitching. We're like, oh, he wakes up. Yeah, no, what was he doing? He knew God's will for his life. Preach the gospel to all creation. That's God's will for your life. How you do it, I would suggest Maybe radically, it's up to you. Not to change what is the gospel, but what God's calling you to. Stop waiting for a mystical voice, for the liver shiver or whatever thing shakes inside you when you feel you're, in, you're praying and you get chills. I would hate to see you risk your life on the fact that somebody had a window cracked. You get a, you get a chills and only, only Corey thought that was, that was worth writing down. I appreciate that. That's why we're friends. Not that we're not, but that... I would hate to see us risk our lives to plan a career on the fact that during one worship service, you got one chill, and you're like, finally, I know what it is. I got it. I got God's will for my life. I would much rather have you find his will in the word, and every time you get a chill, every time you sense a liver shiver or some sort of hair on the back of your neck that you need to shave, stand up 
Everything that happens like that, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm glad when it happens, but I'm not going to wait in paralysis, waiting for God to interrupt my normal. Because Romans 12, and I'm closing with this, let's stand together. God doesn't want to invade our normal. He wants to transform it. God wants to transform it.